0: So this is my husband, Chuck, and for those of you guys who didn't know, I talk about him a lot in my teaching. We got married uh, really young. I think I brought a, one picture of us. That was Chuck at my college graduation. Look how, well, you can't really see, I have a big amount of hair. It was short, but it was wide. And uh, we really had zero idea what we were doing, even though both of our parents had great marriages. But we, uh, from our college experience, just decided we were going to just do this thing really right. We were going to follow the rules of our new roles.
1: I don't remember a thing about our wedding. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Except Alice walking up the steps in her gown, getting shorter as she went because she was walking up the gown. <laughs> My father-in-law loves to bring up the, the, uh, the story about our non-alcoholic uh, reception where, in the end, he paid for like 500 cases of champagne that the wait staff dug out of the storeroom. And on our honeymoon, Alice complained that there was no TV in the rooms because she wanted to watch the Cubs play <laughs> during our honeymoon. <laughs> and she brought a little light reading during our honeymoon... The Cost of Discipleship, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer.
0: I thought that was reasonable.
1: We did ride our mopeds into a nudist colony, though, along the
0: way. We did, we did. That's for another story. That's another teaching. And we really did have real fears as 22, 21-year-olds. What if we missed, this was mostly Chuck's fear, what if we missed God's perfect will? What if we weren't right for each other? What if something happened to one of us? What if we grew apart? What if we fought all the time? What if all the promises about married sex didn't really come true? What if, that's, you can laugh at that. Everybody's like What if Chuck never put the toilet seat down in my whole life and over and over and over, I just fell in? Or what if I put, (laughs) picture it. What if I put a vanilla sweetened yogurt into a vegetable curry dish I proudly made for my new husband and I'd force him to eat it? What if I did that over and over and over again? I bet, you know, every one of you come in here this morning with some real fears, some real concerns about family, whatever your family structure looks like these days. And we, the teaching team at Orchard, believe this is a very big issue. And that's why we're starting 2016 with these five truths that we're all going to kind of speak for the next few weeks, and then we're going to share a little bit of our own stories. The first truth is, when it comes to family, there are some real reasons to fear. I, I wondered to myself, is there any other institution that we engage in like the family that can be the source of our greatest joy while also at the same time being the source of our greatest agony? There's fear in, in creating that bond of real uh, pain and sadness. There's fear people have of our family somehow getting it all wrong and failing. Uh, there's fear of that we'll ever even have a family, like the one that we carry in our mind, or that we will lose our family somehow through death or divorce or family feuds. There's fears that our marriages will unravel for some reason because it happens All the time there's fear that no matter how good we are at parenting, something was gonna go horribly wrong. And the other thing is that fear is the currency of choice in our world today. We are bombarded with fear. But the second truth is that God does not want us to be ruled by fear. He wants us to be ruled by love and hope and confidence in Him. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And we will not fear also because, this is the third truth, God has given us a spirit of power and love. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, It does not make us afraid, but that spirit gives us power, love, and self-discipline. God's spirit is not a spirit of fear, and we have this spirit alive inside of us, and so even in the midst of hard times, even when we feel afraid, God's power and love still are at work within us. And also, I don't know if you caught that in the passage, we also have a spirit of self-discipline, which leads us to our fourth truth, which is this, in our families, we steward ourselves. Newsflash, everybody, the only person we can control, fix, or change in our families is us. Isn't that right? Yes. (laughs) Oh, I answered it for you. (laughs) I'm sorry. You're gonna see a little bit of insight into our marriage this morning. And the last (laughs) truth is that there is power and courage in community. To live in our families without fear, we cannot do it alone. We need each other. And part of how we can create that kind of supportive community that we wanna be here at Orchard is by pulling back the curtain a bit on some real life stories of family. So you're gonna experience that with us over the next four weeks. And so our story today is about marriage. But there are principles here, truths here for all of us. So pay attention to that. Think about it through the marriage lens if you want, and think about it just through your life if you'd rather do it that way. So we started our young marriage with, like I said, a desire to do it right and a fear of doing it wrong. And I believed that once we got married, Chuck was supposed to be in charge of me. And I had no idea that was supposed to all of a sudden happen when all the time that we were dating, we were just best friends. We thought we had to move from this circle of unity that was just the natural flow of our relationship to a ranked order of the military. How very strange that felt to us. To to borrow John Ortberg's words, he said, in what other relationship are you supposed to do this? Do you move into your college dorm and say to your roommate, listen, somebody's got to be in charge here or all chaos will erupt. I pick me. Right? Who would do that?
1: Would you want to be in charge of her?
0: (laughs) It's an honest question. When we were young, I would get frustrated with Chuck when he just wanted to watch football because I thought he should be doing Christian things. I didn't know what they were, but he was supposed to be leading me somewhere, Christianly. And I I almost quit seminary because I failed to get his work shirt ironed for him one morning. Do you remember that, Chuck? No. (laughs) I do.
1: What I remember is being afraid of missing God's perfect will for us, and I'd emphasize the word perfect. I was sort of obsessed with that, and I, I really hamstrung by it. I remember us being kind of paralyzed by our fear that we needed to do it just right.
0: Yep. So that's how we started. Fear-based rules and roles, based on our interpretation of the Bible, influenced by a very conservative campus group that we were both involved in. And so what we did when we first got married was we tried to squeeze our otherwise equal marriage and friendship into what felt to us like very restricted roles and rules, and we ended up confused and frustrated. So one of the things that we learned was that we needed to stop being so fearful of doing it wrong that we missed out on what was real. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, well, whose book I read on my honeymoon, I didn't even think about that, uh, who also was a a martyr um, for his faith um, because he, he tried to kill Hitler, he wrote this about community. He said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. We had to give up our perceived idea of doing it right lest we destroy our actual marriage. We had to give up the dream lest we destroy what was actually real. We had ended up putting rules and roles before relationship. This is the way of the Pharisee. This is always based on fear, rules and roles before relationship. And the relationship I'm primarily talking about was not the relationship we had with each other. The relationship both Chuck and I needed to put above rules and relationships, or rules and roles, was and always is our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus.
1: We put so much emphasis on marriage, and we think it's the pinnacle. And then we get married, and that's, we think that's the first thing Jesus sees about us. Alice is a wife. Chuck is a husband. So-and-so is single. Bob is divorced. Jan is widowed. No. Alice, Chuck, so-and-so, Bob and Jan. The first thing Jesus sees with us is our relationship to him. That's the first thing, not our marital status. And Alice and I had to learn this, and it took a decade of hard knocks and learning to carry each other and lead each other and submit to each other and lay down our lives for each other. That's how we found our way.
0: And here's what we learned. Are you ready for this? This is big. What we learned was that we needed to seek Jesus first, to live out his teachings And then we would find ourselves becoming the kind of wife, the kind of husband, the kind of friend, et cetera, that God wanted us to be. We would find ourselves just doing it right. And this is where Chuck and I got way off track during our first decade of our marriage. It was a long time. We were so fearful about doing marriage right and not doing it wrong that doing marriage God's way became our first thing. And we lost our way. Only when we made following Jesus our first thing did doing marriage right fall into place. I hope you can understand this because it's so critical. First things must be first. And then second things will follow. You cannot get first things by putting second things first. Let me, let me try to explain it this way. When human beings start living out the teachings of Jesus, like... Learning to give up your life for the sake of others. Putting love of other people and God above all things. Living out Jesus' statement that if you want to be great, be a servant. Think of others more highly than you do of yourself. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Lay down your life for your friends. When we actually start to believe and practice those teachings of Jesus over time, guess what? We become a good husband a good wife, a good sister, a good brother, a good aunt, a good uncle, a good grandparent, we then find we are living out those roles, not out of fear-based rules, but out of our relationship with Jesus. Does that make s- some kind of sense? we had flip-flop our priorities. So now what we wanna do, I'm glad Chuck is up here with me for this one. At the risk of raising the hackles of almost everyone in the room this morning, we wanna talk about a section of scripture that we used and that people used to describe the rules and roles of marriage and family. And then we're gonna talk about it a little bit. So um, I'm just gonna read it, is that okay?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Ephesians five, starting with verse, I rarely ask him that kind of thing, but I just (laughs) did that, I just did that. Uh, Ephesians five, starting with verse 21, Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their own wives, ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I bet many of you have heard that, read before. I did not realize until recently, that this passage is what Paul's readers, the people who read that letter from Paul in the first century, uh, Paul's readers would have recognized this particular part of the letter as what's called a family code. And this was part of the Greco-Roman culture in which the early church functioned. It was kind of a list of ways that people in the family are to treat one another. And Paul's readers would have recognized immediately that Paul had gone to this type of writing. And I remember five or six years ago, uh, our family went to Morocco, which is in the northern part of Africa. Um, It has a very Middle East uh, culture kind of feel to it. Our daughter was studying there. And I sat in on one of her classes when all of a sudden her professor started describing current family code in Morocco. And I perked up because I knew what he was doing was he was describing a modern-day version of this Ephesians 5 that I just read. And what he said was that the government had recently voted to change the Moroccan family code so that both husband and wife would be considered heads of households in that country. And it struck me as so important when I learned about this, that countries in the Middle East still have family codes and they alter them as they go. It is important that we as Christians, when we read this text, understand this and know this in order to apply this section of the Bible to our lives today. Though it seems like the simpler answer, we cannot just read words on the page. It's important for us to do the work and understand the context and the culture and the genre. So the question for us today as we look at Ephesians 5 is how would the first century Christians have read it? What would they have noticed and how would they have interpreted it? See, Paul here took the current family code of his culture and he made some radical, uniquely Christian changes to it as he wrote to the young church at Ephesus. And that is what his readers would have been noticed, would have noticed and would have been shocked by. So what were the big changes? What, what were the shockers to those first-century Christians? Well, I have a little quiz. It's not difficult, but um, I'm going to put three statements up. There they are, three statements up on the slides. And I want you to think about with me which two of these three statements were completely radical and new, and which one was not new nor radical at all. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ... Wives, in the the Greek, it doesn't have the word submit again. It just says, wives, to your husbands, meaning submit to your husbands in all things, for he is the head. Or husbands, love your wife as your own body and give yourself up for her. Can you guess which ones are the shockers? Number one is the first shocker, and it was a real doozy. Everyone submitting to each other. And this Uh, verse, verse 21, must be read as the lead verse of this whole code. It sets the overarching tone. This was the primary call to the community of Jesus followers. The rest is description. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Complete shock to the community. Number three was the other shocker. To state that the husband no longer owns his wife like a piece of property. That the husband doesn't rule over his wife, doesn't beat his wife, doesn't discard her for a new one, which were practices of the day. But that the husband is now called to figuratively lay down his life for her, to give up his rights by giving up his life for her sake. That was new and I'm sure created quite a rustle in the room when this letter was read. This is what his readers would have been shocked by. So now let's look at number two. Wives, submit to your husbands, for he is the head. No one would have batted an eye to the mandate to the wife to submit, which does not mean it's still not important for us today. But we have to understand, that was all the wife had ever done in that culture. That is what was expected of her outside of the church. No one would have thought this was strange or even inherently Christian at all. But to form a community where everyone submits to everyone, what? Where husbands willingly lay down their lives for their wives and vice versa, what does that even look like? This was uniquely Christian in that day and new. And so when we read this text, what we are looking at is a new family code where submission of Christian to Christian out of reverence for Christ is the highest call, where who can outserve the other is the guiding question, not who gets to call the shots. So now, today, the question for us is not how can we exactly try to live out a 2,000-year-old Middle Eastern family code. The question is, what does this look like for us today? And I found a beautiful quote from one of my new favorite young female authors uh, named Sarah Bessie. And she writes this. She said, if wives submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ... And if husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and if both husbands and wives submit to one another as commanded, we enter a never-ending life-giving circle of mutual submission and love.
1: You won't find the phrase servant-leader in the Bible. You won't find the phrase spiritual leader in the Bible. In fact, you will not find the word leader anywhere when it comes to marriage in the Bible. How can a marriage work if someone doesn't lead the other? Chaos will erupt. Dogs and cats living together.
0: <laughs> What's this that is from? What... what movie?
1: That's Ghostbusters. Okay,
0: they... thank you. He quotes movies, and I'm like, what? Ghostbusters.
1: For what? Rent it, enjoy it. <laughs> this is what we originally believed in our marriage uh that's me now sorry
0: it's my turn (laughs) (laughs) come you stand back up though come on chuck is not my spiritual leader jesus is
1: alice is neither my leader nor my follower why would she follow when she follow me when she has jesus to follow jesus is my leader and he is our leader as a couple so servant leader is not in the bible but what will you, you will find are the words, head and body, to describe the husband and wife. I think we have a slide for this.
0: The husband, he is the head, but the wife, she is the neck. And she tells the head which way to turn. My big fat Greek wedding, am I right?
1: Do you see what I put up with? Night and day she talks. Sorry.
0: It's all right. I forgive you.
1: And we love to use we love to use those words to mean yeah head and body to to mean uh, leader and one who needs to be led. But Alice and I have come to believe, especially as we look at those words in light of Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching.
0: And and as we understand that Middle Eastern culture where Paul was writing from and how Paul was shaped, they love word pictures, they love metaphors, they love images. We're much more literal as we read words, but we believe that these words, head and body, have way more to do with a picture of unity, with a picture of one flesh, as the Bible calls marriage, than they have to do with a picture of who's in charge or hierarchy. The wife is the body, the husband is the head. It is a picture of unity husband and wife as one flesh not hierarchy much more like the trinity now i want to say very clearly that there are people here at orchard who interpret these words as meaning more of a hierarchy and that is okay and biblically accurate and it works in their marriage it helps them love and serve each other but there are many people here who also interpret these words more like chuck and i do This is what is called a big tent church. And there are folks on the teaching team. We live on this spectrum too and we love each other when we pray for each other's marriages and we learn from each other. It is okay to interpret words and phrases slightly differently from each other. The question is in the end, how do you become more loving? What makes you more like Christ? What helps you live your life for the sake of your spouse, or if you're not married, for your friends or your family members or your fellow brothers and sisters, rather than for your own sake? See, to live in our family without fear means, at least it has meant for us, the question is never who is the greatest. The question is how can I serve? How can I help you grow and become yourself? How can I lay down my life, my rights, my own self-centeredness so that you can become all God wants you to become? How can I love you best? So you see, we started with this fear and this desire to do it right, but we have landed and we have been here for the last 20 years now in a new place a place of power and love and self-discipline where Jesus leads both of us and Jesus leads our family. We don't lead each other, we love each other. And yes, part of how I love Chuck is by submitting to him and it is easy for while I am doing that, he is doing the same. We submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. And understand, this does not make him weak. It makes him the strongest man I know. I mean, he's strong in just a pure manly way. I mean, look at those biceps, right? Flex it up, (laughs) Chuck. He's strong enough to serve me. He's strong enough to stand up here with me for Lord's sake. He's strong enough to parent our kids in ways that lead them to thrive. He's strong enough to cheer me on when people say, aren't you Alice's husband? (laughs) He's strong enough to lay down his life for my sake in ways big and small. He's not my leader, he is my best friend. He's the kind of guy that dropped me off at the door this morning and then parked six miles away. Uh, He's my strongest advocate. And because of him, I am becoming who God created me to become. Aww.
1: (laughs) God does not want us to live in fear. Fear of somehow getting this family, this marriage thing wrong. To uh, To paraphrase the Westminster Catechism, we are to love God and enjoy God forever. And by extension, love and enjoy each other. I am not in charge of Alice, I love her. I am not her leader, I am her other half. Almost sounds like marriage vows here. It almost felt like that. Excuse us,
0: just for a moment, yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even think about that. She she is not the, uh, 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 we are not a ranked list. She is not the ironer of my shirts. In fact, I wash and dry my very own wrinkle-free work shirt, thank you very much. She is not my assistant or my gopher or my second in command. She is my ally. I do not need her to be weak or quiet or minimized or shushed so I can feel strong. I do not need to ever pull rank on her to make decisions or lead our family or to be a man. We make decisions together. We lead our family together. We love and serve and follow Jesus together. And sometimes we disagree, but we figure that out. We're a team. And she's my favorite teacher, and don't tell her this, because she'll get a big head, and then, then I'll have to deal with that.
0: <laughs> On that note, let's, let's move into a time of communion.